0: Tonight's City Club Forum broadcast was recorded April 13th on the topic, The Age of Trump and Brexit, the US, Britain, and the world after Brexit, with featured speaker Dr. Martin Farr, foreign policy expert and senior lecturer at the University of Newcastle in the United Kingdom. Today's City Club presentation with Dr. Martin Farr was part of a presentation that included slides. The speaker makes reference to these slides and they can be viewed at KISU.org or by going to cityclub.com archives.
1: City Club is privileged to have with us this afternoon Dr. Martin Farr, Senior Lecturer in Modern and Contemporary British History at the University of Newcastle. Dr. Farr has lectured and written extensively on those subjects, as well as the politics of Britain and of this country. He has frequently appeared as a guest on television and radio, television just last night, as a matter of fact, on Channel 8, Carol Honus had the privilege of a preview of all of this, and uh, I watched it with great interest, and on radio to discuss topics such as these while traveling throughout the world. Dr. Farr is currently working on two books, Margaret Thatcher's World and Presidents and Prime Ministers, McKinley and Salisbury to Obama and Cameron. He is the convener of an annual conference attended by scholars from throughout the world titled Britain and the World. And he comes to us today from their most recent meeting, uh, which was held in Austin, Texas. His topic this afternoon, the age of Trump and Brexit, the US, Britain, and the world after Brexit, offers a special opportunity for us to learn and to inquire about the future of the European Union, of NATO, British-US relations, of populism in world politics at the moment, and of Great Britain itself. Let me have your questions. I know I'm gonna get a lot of them. I've already got some, which is a little unusual. Dr. Farr is accompanied today by Dr. Lauren Krutko of the Idaho State University History Department. Lauren, we owe our special thanks to for making Dr. Farr's appearance here today possible. Now, without further introduction, let us welcome Dr. Martin Farr.
2: Thank you very much, Tim, and thank you very much, Greg. And I'd like to echo uh, Tim's words about uh, Lauren, who um, I've been in the country now for just over three weeks and I've been speaking in various places, but nowhere has there been such provision made for me, including TV interviews and uh, lovely lunches. So um, uh, really, thank you very much uh, for that, Lauren. I'm I'm deeply uh, touched, and it's been been wonderful, and I'm delighted by so many people being here. I gave a public lecture uh, in Durham uh, it was the cathedral city south of where I work in Newcastle um, just before I left um, and it turned out on this subject uh, a public lecture and it turned out actually to be half a public lecture uh, there was a lecture but there was no public I think we had about seven people um, and I wondered then whether this was possibly down to Brexit fatigue Um, because we've lived with it uh, for six months, uh, and we've been living with it for much longer, um, forever, actually, uh, but certainly for two more years as we negotiate the terms of uh, exit. Um, And I wondered here, actually, whether there might be um, a similar fatigue with your head of state. (laughs) And my concerns have been sort of reinforced by the fact that after every talk, there have been many questions about Brexit, but none about Trump. So that may well be the case today, but I'm very happy to, to stay in chat for however long you'd like to after the, after the talk. Um, I have slides, um, and I think the best way to go through the next half hour is to take you through them and, and some of the themes that they are concerned with, because my uh, interest here is in looking at these two uh, phenomena, which they are phenomena, uh, which happened at roughly the same time. Um, in um, the two most prominent English-speaking countries in the world, which have a great deal in common with each other, and the consequences can be felt, I think, uh, in both countries, too. Um, My first slide is a cartoon by Stan Greenberg, um, published over here um, in the uh, early part of last year, um, which seemed, frankly, um, outrageous uh, that such possibilities were possible. Um, Either one seemed to be Uh, outlandish, but that both could happen seemed to be the subject of cartoonists, of satirists of their age. Um, And actually, it turns out that both came to pass, as we know, uh, and that satire became reality. Um, But as a distillation of what actually happened, this isn't actually a bad uh, summary. Um, The cap differs uh, from a flat cap to a MAGA red cap. I've only seen one so far in my, in my tour, in the front row of a university at McNeese in Louisiana. Um, and um, But the similarities, I think, are quite clear. Um, immigrants, globalization, um, the way in which um, people who were forgotten or felt themselves to be forgotten, or at the very least patronized by those in positions of power uh, over generations, had the chance to respond. Uh, to respond in relation to um, these elites through, in Britain, a referendum, which is a very... Uncommon constitutional uh, event, uh, and here through a presidential election, which of course is regular, but on this occasion with a very irregular nominee, and it turns out, Victor, uh, Victor, of course, in, in qualified terms. Um, so this was the, the period um, at which I was I was in London last year during we had the conference that uh, Tim mentioned. We were in London last year, and the. Um, The government chose to have the referendum in the middle of the conference, um, and it was uh, a great distraction, as you can imagine, and the weeks afterwards were remarkable for someone like me who does political history and contemporary history, because it felt like a decade's worth of events had been compressed into a month, um, as is rather nicely summarized by this cartoon in the Daily Telegraph. that was just how intense things felt. Uh, it wasn't really... If you, if you can't read it, I'll read out. I'm studying politics. The course covers the period from 8 o'clock on Thursday to lunchtime on Friday. <laughs> Every day it seemed a party was broken, a leader was, had resigned or was sacked. Uh, the implications were extraordinary. I remember walking around Westminster the following morning... <clears throat> and it's my job to make sense of these things, trying to make sense of these things, and passing all of the international film crews across, for, across the river on the um, Thames Embankment, filming the Houses of Parliament, um, and an absolute mayhem of um, reflection and discussion and trying to work out what happened, and of course it's much too early to say. Um, but some things are clear already, uh, and that is the document on the left, uh, rather too small for you to read, but it's me to show you the letter, um, has negated that on the right. The, the document on the left is the letters that Theresa May wrote to the President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, uh, last week, uh, taking advantage of my absence from the country, I noticed, to leave uh, the European Union. Um, and this, um, this letter, very very politely stated that, uh, terribly sorry, but we're going. Nothing personal. Um, it's not you, it's us effectively saying that. Um, a dialogue I know very well from uh, my personal life. And... Um, this means that, um, <clears throat> effectively, Britain will be abrogating the document on the right, which is the uh, the 1992 European Communities Act, which is the document which takes Britain into Europe in '72. Uh, there had been a, a long debate about this, and one of the big themes of the talk, and indeed of the subject, is, <coughs> excuse me, Britain's relations with Europe, and the very fact that one phrases it in those terms. One wouldn't say France's relations with Europe or Germany's with Europe is itself significant, um, and you see often in newspapers with flights to. Europe, holidays in Europe, Uh, the the, the constant refrain and and thought process is of it being a separate place, both physically and psychologically and even psychically. Um, And so we saw this um, reversal of what appeared to be the settling of this issue for a lifetime. And the the issue of Brexit has animated wider global concerns. This is Marine Le Pen, the leader of the French Front National, the National Front, uh, formerly a a, a quasi-fascistic party under her father, and a party born of France's experience of decolonization and of the voiceless minorities, Um, here giving her voice to Uh, the response on the French right. This was something said last month. Um, It's a very strong signal, that is to say Brexit. It shows that there is at least one way of finding the keys of the jail because we have been told that it was impossible to leave the EU. Um, Notions of jails and prisons are quite common with critics of the European Union. You may see in the poster...
0: Today's City Club presentation with Dr. Martin Farr was part of a presentation that included slides. The speaker makes reference to these slides and they can be viewed at KISU.org or by going to cityclub.com slash archives.
2: The handcuffs being broken by the incarcerated uh, countries and individuals. Um, Brexit for France now. This was an opportunity for parties in Europe, usually of the right, populist right, but also the populist left, to break off these shackles. Um, The UK has just demonstrated that when people want it, and people are prominent in rhetoric, the people, common people, ordinary people, you can set up the conditions to exit the EU. So thank you for showing us the way out from this huge prison, which the EU is for the people, which is a remarkable statement because it suggests that for the first time in its history, Britain has actually led in Europe, Um, although not in a way desired by uh, the European Union, um, who on its 60th anniversary, a big year of, of celebrations after the 1957 Treaty of Rome, has to face one of its largest countries, leaving. Uh, a huge embarrassment, which has ramifications I'll mention later. Um, Marine Le Pen is standing for the presidency in France. The first round of elections is this month. Um, she'll probably make it to the, um, the, 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 the final um, election with her and another candidate, uh, unlikely to win, but who knows after Brexit and Trump, neither of which are expected to happen. The former Brexit always being possible but unlikely, the Trump result being totally inconceivable. Um, But the elections in Europe, uh, some have passed already, some are to come, are significant. This is Mark Rutte, the Netherlands Prime Minister. Uh, Their election was last uh, month. Uh, And he said uh, in the the afternoon after the election, uh, it's an evening when the Netherlands, after Brexit and the American elections, uh, there are many examples of how Brexit and Trump are yoked together internationally as examples of the things I'll be mentioning in this talk, Uh, has said no to the wrong sort of populism. Populism being a word we'll return to in the talk and I'm sure in the conversation. There's a right sort, evidently, from his um, uh, statement. Now it's important to bring our country together and form a stable government. So the alternative to populism, as far as he's concerned, is stability and um, consensual government and so on. So in the case of the Netherlands, there was a party led by a man called Gert Wilders uh, called the Freedom Party. Freedom is a very big word in American political lexicon. Uh, Not quite so common in Britain or in Europe, but it's quite strikingly common in the populist language of some of these parties. Le Pen speaks of freedom. Uh, There are freedom parties in Hungary, in the Netherlands. Um, This is a word which is used to suggest the liberation which uh, Marine Le Pen's poster signified. Um, And in both UK and the US, it's been striking how the language of Brexit and Trump, those promoting both, sought to establish differences between those that ruled and those who were ruled. Um, Perhaps in some cases uh, accentuating existing differences, but certainly trying to create a sense of otherness and of people being downtrodden. Uh, I have two um, evidence examples here of both um, Donald Trump and uh, a key proponent of Brexit using very similar language. On the left you have um, the Daily Mail, which is a very prominent conservative tabloid populist newspaper in Britain. the most widely read newspaper in Britain. About 10 million people read this newspaper every day. It's an extremely effective um, uh, journal. Uh, And it was formed or created by a man called uh, Lord Northcliffe at the turn of the last century, Uh, very similar to William Randolph Hearst in this country, at the same time creating uh, newspapers called the Yellow Press on poor quality newsprint, um, which were made to deal with newly literate working class people and were very effective in generating readership and loyalty through dealing with concerns of patriotism, threats from abroad. Uh, It's not surprising that I think, certainly as far as the mail is concerned, and I've got an American example coming up shortly, that the way in which um, fears, suspicions, Legitimate concerns can be accentuated by very effective newspapers and by their owners, of which more later. Um, Here we have on the left the Daily Mail's uh, headline saying enemies of the people. These were three judges who decided that um, the House of Commons should have a vote on Brexit. Now that is unremarkable in the sense that Brexit was meant to be an effort to restore sovereignty to Parliament. Parliament being effectively the House of Commons. Uh, But the Daily Mail is twisting this to being the judges trying to ignore the will of the people and going through Parliament. The document I showed you earlier, the 1972 Communities Act, when Britain went into Europe, uh, the vote was in 71 and only MPs took it. It seems inconceivable now, and perhaps in a a legitimate way, as far as some are concerned, that MPs themselves would decide on something of this magnitude. It's gone in nearly 50 years from being a matter of legislators to the people directly. Uh, And the difference between the attitude and the the processes of legislators and those of the public are quite stark. And it allows something like the mail to be a key actor in this, uh, to present the judges as being out of touch and ignoring the will of the people. Uh, On the right, you have one of Donald Trump's um, infrequent tweets about um, the fake news media, of which more later. but particularly, not my enemy, the enemy of the American people. There is an interest, it's an obvious point, there's an interest in creating a sense of um, the people being betrayed or being lied to. Um, And the idea of fake news and alternative facts and so on is a very new one, certainly as far as Britain's concerned. It's not an illegitimate concern to create, to connect Brexit and Trump. I've mentioned how it's done in Europe. Trump himself was very keen to suggest, uh, with typical reticence, that he was in fact Mr. Brexit um, and that he alone had predicted it. And of course, he had predicted it and he was proved right. It did happen. And he said he would be president and he was proved right as well. That happened. Um, And he um, has been very keen, and his supporters, those behind him, um, were keen to, to think of Brexit as a practice run for his run on the presidency, given how similar some of the themes, and the approaches, and the language would be. He was so concerned that, in fact, he had uh, the leader of the UK Independence Party, UKIP, Nigel Farage, over uh, here speaking with Trump in Mississippi during the campaign. Uh, Farage is a remarkable phenomenon in that he's probably the most consequential politician in Britain since the war, and has never held office or been elected to anything other than as an MEP in the European Parliament, member of the European Parliament. Um, But he was vital in Brexit because this was an articulate and charismatic individual who was able to hold together, however briefly, a disparate group of other individuals and organizations to fight for a single goal. And that goal was Brexit and he achieved it, and now he will have a career. Very often he's over here on the news channels, often on Fox, Um, and his association with Trump is clear. Um, So clear, in fact, that Trump uh, suggested a new new diplomatic um, practice of nominating your own ambassadors to your own country um, uh, because of the bond that they both have. Um, It's a bond which goes beyond those two, and this is why I'm very keen not to suggest that I'm trying to describe a conspiracy or a plot, merely that these are individuals with very similar interests uh, and very similar concerns. This is a photograph taken in Trump Tower uh, immediately after the election, which shows a number of individuals. Uh, In the middle, you can see Trump and Farage uh, on his left. Uh, We have here uh, Aaron Banks, who is a billionaire supporter of Trump, um, you may be familiar with Robert Mercer over here. Um, the role of people like Aaron Banks and Robert Mercer are significant. They make these things possible because they're able to fund them, because their interests chime with those who are able to give a front. So Banks is able to give Farage the, uh, the means to promote his cause by paying for, you know, paying for logistics, posters, uh, airtime, and so on. Uh, we have here um, Andy, sorry, um, Andy uh, Whiteman, who is uh, a, a, a Key person behind Leave, uh, behind something a bit called the Taxpayers Alliance. These people essentially are very small state libertarian figures. This is a much more natural position in the U.S. than in the U.K which has had a more collectivist mentality since the Second World War. And it's that mentality they're keen to uh, break up, the National Health Service, the BBC, the Westminster, indeed, the, the major parties. It's a desire to change and to effectively to destroy, but certainly to, at this stage to fracture and to allow more pluralism, more choice, uh, and more liberty. The notions of freedom and liberty being significant ones for all of these
0: people. Uh,
2: here we have Jerry Gunster. Oh, sorry, wrong one again.
0: Um, Today's City Club presentation with Dr. Martin Farr was part of a presentation that included slides. The speaker makes reference to these slides, and they can be viewed at KISU.org or by going to cityclub.com archives. Jerry
2: Gunster, who's an American pollster uh, who's familiar with many people on the Trump site, um, and on the far right there, a man called Raheem Kassam, uh, who is um, Farrad's closest ally uh, and has been appointed uh, last year editor of Breitbart UK, by Steve Bannon, uh, the outgoing, I mean that in several senses, uh, member of the current administration. Uh, The fact that Bannon is falling out with Trump is less significant than the fact that Bannon helped, although the president's keen to say now he joined the campaign very late, helped President Trump uh, achieve his position. Uh, Bannon and Banks speak similar language, they say similar things, and they think of the world in similar ways. And they responded, um, to Brexit, this is the uh, New York Post's response. Um, the Post, of course, is owned by Rupert Murdoch. I've mentioned already Northcliffe and Hearst. Murdoch is a figure here as well. I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to, I hope I'm not suggesting a, a polemical approach to this. I'm merely trying to explain and analyse what happens. Uh, Murdoch's interest has always been to undermine the European Union. European Union has always been very keen to regulate uh, media organisations, to limit ownership. These are inimical to the interests of someone like Murdoch, who wants, of course, to run large organisations and have influence and power. Nothing unusual in that. It's it's what uh, people like Murdoch want to do. Um, And his concern throughout his time in Britain and his time in America has been to um, uh, attack what he sees as liberal, patronizing uh, institutions. In Britain, he attacks the BBC. Over here, it's the New York Times. He bought the Wall Street Journal, in part, to undermine the, Wall Street Time, uh, the New York Times. Um, Trump makes a big thing about the New York Times. Um, there is an interest here in trying to suggest that people are being, uh, i use the word again, patronized. Uh, Murdoch's view is the BBC is a kind of institution which is uh, uh, telling people what they should think, what they should watch. They pay a poll tax to to fund it. Uh, he doesn't believe in this. He wants to have uh, organizations paid for by their appeal. He's a, you know, he's, a, he's a capitalist who believes that customers should have choice and organizations should exist if there's demand for them. Um, the difference between the regulatory tendencies in the UK and those in the US are, are quite different. But the, under, the underpinning interests, I think, are similar. Um, as a historian, I was struck by the way in which the past appeared in both Brexit and Trump. Um, it's an obvious point to make, but the Trump campaign was to make America great again. Uh, and Brexit, it was, uh, let's take back control. In both cases, and more widely, there was a, an allusion to a past which was better than the present. And insofar as both campaigns appealed to and were supported uh, by older people as a tendency... Um, with a memory of things as they were, uh, I think there's a, case from, there's a case to be made for saying this was a very effective line of um, campaigning, that things were better, jobs were more secure, wages were better, housing was more affordable, in a period before the effects of globalisation, which include things like large-scale immigration and the consequent effects on wages and on uh, other circumstances. Um, with, um, additionally, with, with, as a historian, I was struck also by how those who couldn't speak for themselves were introduced. Um, Ouija boards were brought out to explain how Margaret Thatcher would have voted uh, and how Winston Churchill would have voted. Churchill was a big figure, uh, was half American, a big figure here and a big figure at home. This is an example of a tweet um, which was dealing with a a very popular uh, uh, Churchillian quotation which was used by the Leave campaign. We have our own dream and our own task. We are with them but not of them. We with Europe, but not of it. We are linked, but not combined. We are interested and associated, but not absorbed. If Britain must choose between Europe and the open sea, she must always choose the open sea. And it's even footnoted, as historians should do, to, to, to allow people to find the source themselves. House of Commons, May 11th, 1953. Uh, he never said this. Uh, he never said it ever, and certainly not in the House of Commons on that day. Because I've checked, because I'm a historian, and this is how we find things out. Uh, this was uh, a fabricated quote of several attributed phrases, some things out of context, stuck together to suggest that there's a, a Churchillian imprimatur, a, a sort of a seal of approval to leaving. This went around. This is an example of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, uh, an alternative fact, of a false truth, however you want to describe it. Um, and it was responded to here by someone pointing this out, but. The problem is mainstream media found this as being a problem. Is that however outlandish a statement could be on social media, if it became a story, they had to report it. And so the major organisations of the BBC had in their studios people discussing this, talking about outlandish quotation, and thereby giving it credence uh, and veracity. Right. Um, why did these things happen? Is first thing. Um, I'm, I want to ask you a question. First thing is, just a show of hands. is anyone familiar with this painting behind me. I'm just curious. One, two. Yes. It's about average. I, I, it's a man by John McNaughton, a painter, usually of religious um, scenes. Um, I'd been, t- I'd read that he was quite a prominent artist over here, but very few people seem to be aware of him. This is a painting that he did of, of, of Obama, and you can see here Obama uh, being fated by the media, fated by international leaders, the spotlight's on him, there's lots of cash flowing around. Um, and meanwhile, in the in the foreground, Ordinary Joe is, is shackled, again, the Marine Le Pen thing of chains, cutting off the burden of Uh, of of the state, of being forgotten. Uh, I want my country back, the placards say. This is meant to be an augury of what happened. And one of MacNaughton's paintings, I'm not sure which, uh, was placed in the Oval Office by Steve Bannon. Whether it's still there or not is another question. But certainly the fact that MacNaughton had uh, this influence on, and a kind of expression of the attitude, I think it's quite quite an effective one. Uh, A slightly less uh, exalted image comes from the UK. This is David Cameron. Um, ...and his uh, backbenchers, the the MPs in his uh, party... um, ...who are holding a pistol to his head. And you probably can't quite see. The pistol is Nigel Farage. Um, In in 2015, the Conservative Party had an election to win... ...and they felt that their appeal would be undermined... ...if there were votes for the UKIP... uh, ...United Kingdom Party, UKIP, on the right... um, ...promising to leave the European Union. They feared votes being taken away thereby allowing the Labour Party, which is a, a social-democratic party of the centre-left, to win power. In order to avoid that, uh, Cameron offered a referendum. And so this, is, this is demonstrates the extent to which um, he was held captive by his backbench MPs in Parliament, given the, 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 the precarious nature of the coalition that he was facing. Um, but it's a much deeper question than that. Um, this actually is uh, an original Churchill quote. Uh, he asked, where do we stand? We are not members of the European defence community, nor do we intend to be merged in a federal European system. Uh, The word federal has been a constant um, refrain of Leavers for 25 years, and it has multiple meanings. Uh, We feel we have a special relation to both, expressed by the preposition with but not of. We are with them but not of them. We have our own commonwealth and empire. Now, this is the actual quote you saw butchered earlier on. Um, With but not of, I think, actually explains what happens more succinctly than anything I can say. Uh, Churchill has this gift. Um, The last part is significant for the theme of this talk, the particular angle of this talk, which is the global... Um, consequences. Um, It sounded rather um, sort of of nostalgic to bring in the Commonwealth and Empire, even in 51, as it's all starting to fall apart. But actually, many of the Brexiters, many of those that wanted to leave, have been citing the idea of of the Commonwealth and Empire 2.0 as a way of facing the world anew, um, a conception which has received, as you can imagine, a a variety of responses from uh, the former uh, Empire and the current Commonwealth. Um, some documents, just to show you um, where this where this stands. This is on the, the green document is um, the um, leaflet given to every household in the country in '73 when Britain went in, signed by Edward Heath. Uh, Heath was the Prime Minister at the time. Uh, Heath was the Prime Minister least enamoured of the special relationship between the UK and the US. He wasn't anti-American, but he was not. It wasn't his focal point. He was much more, he felt, this is the key question to ask really, whether one feels that the English Channel or the Atlantic is the wider expanse of water. Um, For Churchill and for Thatcher and for most prime ministers, I would suggest, the Atlantic seems much, and most British people probably, much shorter. The the cultural leap is much less than the much shorter distance to France or Belgium or to Europe more broadly. Um, And Heath's concern is someone who fought in the war, someone who believed in the ideal of Europe, rather than merely this as being a market, was expressed in this document. On the right is the um, referendum, the ballot paper from the referendum two years later. The first referendum ever in Britain, uh, and an example of this British um, fudge, compromised, extemporized approach to things under the appearance of it being, uh, like, being the case for a 1,000 years. Um, this referendum was brought about simply because the prime minister of the time, Heath's successor, Howard Wilson, had a tiny majority and wanted to keep his cabinet together. So it was a short-term tactical move with long-term consequences. Uh, the similarities with what David Cameron did in 2014 in promising this, I think, are very clear. More short-term tactical moves
0: with long-term consequences. Um, Today's City Club presentation with Dr. Martin Farr was part of a presentation that included slides. The speaker makes reference to these slides, and they can be viewed at KISU.org or by going to cityclub.com slash archives.
2: This cartoon, I, 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 I'm very fond of this cartoon. This is from a British newspaper in '75, um, which is the year of the referendum. And I show it tra- merely to demonstrate how times change. Um, this is demonstrating that um, only those who are on the margins of politics wanted to leave. But this didn't settle the matter. The fact there was a clear majority for staying in in 75 didn't settle the matter. This is a, a campaign poster from the referendum party in 97. a party created uh, simply to have a referendum and regard it as as an extreme uh, group, as we now know. Now, of course, that came to pass. Um, it came to pass in part because, as this graph demonstrates, Of the four major European countries, Britain or the British people have always been the least enamored of the European ideal compared to the French, the Germans, or the Italians. Consistently so. There may be reasons why this is the case, um, which we can discuss afterwards. But it was, it was one way in which Cameron felt he had to um, make a commitment to have a referendum. This is a poster from the Conservative Party campaign uh, in 2015, um, suggesting that if you vote for any other party than the Conservatives, you won't get a referendum, because only the Conservatives can deliver a referendum. This is a promise which was made which is hard to get out of. Uh, It's um, something which he felt obliged to deliver on, and he did, and he did it the same as Wilson in 75. He promised to renegotiate, to get better terms, to do a deal, as your head of state would know, uh, and to come back with that deal, demonstrating his prowess as a statesman, and what will come to pass. This is what came to pass. the, um, on the right, you can see what happens. Uh, on the left is what he promised. With courage and conviction, I believe we can achieve a new settlement in which Britain can be comfortable and all our countries can thrive. Because I believe something very deeply that Britain's national interest is best served in a flexible, adaptable, and open European Union, and that such a European Union is better with Britain in it. Over the coming weeks, months, and years, I will not rest until this debate is won. For the future of my country, for the success of the European Union, and for the prosperity of our peoples for generations to come. Uh, an object lesson in, 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 in statesmanship. Um, not uh, because he overpromised in a short time span. The cartoon shows you banging at the door. His basic concession he wanted was on freedom of movement, which was not possible. The Europeans did not want to concede one of the basic tenets of the European ideal, the free movement of people as well as of goods and services. And so he produced very little in his return, and that in part explains why we have um, the Brexit and the... Uh, Trump experience. Um, a few comments on democracy, which have been uh, very prominent in people's discussions. Um, Trump uh, has been seen in Britain as at the vanguard of this pitchfork revolution. Uh, behind him here, you can see Marine Le Pen, you can see Nigel Farage, and Boris Johnson, who is currently Foreign Secretary, also half-American, uh, who is, was very keen on leaving the European Union. Uh, the concern was this is a new uh, development. This is, populism is angry, it's dangerous. What can we do about it? As many of you will know too well, populism is not new. Uh, Much of this isn't new. Uh, There are examples behind me of populists in American politics of various hues. Uh, Ronald Reagan himself used Make America Great Again as a campaign slogan in 1980. Um, There's not much new there, but what is new is the way in which, and there are some examples here in Britain, Enoch Powell, the Referendum Party, UKIP again. There are ways in which uh, social media, which uh, communication skills, which the, the Leave people had much more of than those that wanted to remain, and the desire to change, um, I think, was 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 different in both cases. Um, there's also a cultural element here about uh, tribes and about what sort of person you feel comfortable with. I think this is a very striking image behind me. This is a Remain poster from earlier last year, which tries to suggest that only you know, sensible people want us to stay in. Uh, Barack Obama is sensible and popular in Britain. He's the president of the United States. And he's saying, um, it, it, Europe, Obama thinks the UK is stronger in Europe. On the other hand, this absolutely crazy person, as the implication is, who couldn't possibly be elected president, thinks we should leave. So who is the person to listen to? Uh, It's almost saying, don't worry about the facts. What sort of person does this? A rational person stays in, a crazy person goes out, and a responsible person goes out. That was something which was used by the Remain campaign, and it was a complacent attitude which backfired, as Obama's Visits London in April last year backfired, where he was regarded as having patronised people. Um, It backfired in the sense that, on the left, rather small, David Cameron described UKIP supporters as fruitcake racists, and loons. Um, UKIP voters thereby sold fruitcake at their their rallies uh, to demonstrate their kind of appropriation of the brand quite happily, and also you can see a chap behind me who is happy to describe himself as a deplorable after Hillary Clinton's rather ill-advised comments about Trump supporters being deplorables. Um, They were quite happy to have this badge of association and to um, resist those who have these patronizing notions of being part of the past. Um, This suggests, and it was true, that both Brexit and Trump were very uh, divisive campaigns This is the most divisive image of all of the Brexit campaign, uh, brought out in the last week of the campaign, uh, which um, some have seen as a racist poster, or an implicitly or a subliminally racist poster, which shows, uh, as it happens, lots of Syrian refugees in Slovenia. So nothing to do with the European Union at all, or Britain. But um, very... Arguably, very irresponsibly, but very powerfully capturing the notion of a country being unable to guard its borders or to control its borders. And the fear of an oncoming rush of people who look different and sound different. Uh, A nativist impulse, if you like, which was very effective. We can't measure how effective, but this poster was at the the height of the campaign. Right. Uh, Coming towards the end, just some examples. Quite some geostrategic consequences of this as far as the world's concerned. Um, as so often we come back to uh, Winston. Um, Churchill saw Britain as, uh, he saw the world in terms of three circles. Um, and if you think of three circles and overlapping each other, and there's one in the middle, um, a bit in the middle which all three uh, overlap. The first for us is naturally the British Commonwealth and Empire, with all that that comprises, the first circle the Empire. Then there is also the English-speaking world. Centering upon the United States, in which we, Canada, and the other British dominions, play so important a part. And finally, there is United Europe. Churchill coined that very phrase, which, was, which is so ambiguous and was used so much subsequently. Now, if you think of the three interlinked circles, you will see that we are the only country that has a great part in every one of them. We stand, in fact, at the very point of juncture. And here in this island, at the center of the seaways, and perhaps of the airways also, we have the opportunity of joining them together. This is, uh, um, I wouldn't say desperate, but this is an attempt to try and make Britain count after the war, with the empire disintegrating with a newly bipolar world between Washington and Moscow, um, an attempt to try and make it last. um, He sees Europe, in this sense, as part of the project. Um, And that continued to a large extent with many politicians on the right. Um, Margaret Thatcher was less clear, however. Uh, Here she's on the left in a rather fetch and jumper during the campaign for the referendum, when she was a very strong uh, proponent of staying, because she believed in the European, uh, the common market as a market. Britain's being involved in a market, a transactional relationship. When it changed to being um, a kind of a social and political dimension, she went off it. And she's much happier over here. Uh, for all sorts of reasons, much happy with her friend Ronnie, as she called him. Uh, in my lifetime, Europe has been the source of our problems, not the source of our solutions. It's America and Britain that saved the world. This uh, is something the French de Gaulle always felt was at the heart of Britain's genuine feelings. It was never fully European and would always be a Trojan horse for the Americans, which is why, of course, every American president up until the present wanted Britain in Europe, because it enhanced America's interests. Um, Europe became a concern for all British Prime Ministers. Uh, The cartoon shows Margaret Thatcher being brought down by Europe. John Major, his successor, brought down by Europe, both of which are true. And this was drawn in 1997 with the idea that Tony Blair, who wanted a single currency membership, also could be brought down by Europe. But of course, he was brought down by the special relationship and Iraq. So it's one or the other usually for uh, British prime ministers who had to deal in many cases with 20 years of hostile European Union uh, or anti-European Union headlines from newspapers owned by the type of people I mentioned before. Uh, The effect on public opinion was quite um, profound. Um, As far as uh, security relations are concerned, um, in many ways my conclusions have changed since I've been here because, as you may know, yesterday Trump did a 180 on his view of NATO. Um, And the whole concern about Trump coming to power was that he was undermining NATO. He didn't believe in in NATO. He wanted uh, America to be, if not isolationist, certainly America first, and not subsidising European security. Um, And now that seems to have changed since I um, gave my last talk. So um, there, there are signs here of perhaps a more conventional politician than we thought. Um, one able to change the circumstances and to compromise, and how that plays with his supporters is something we'll have to um, discuss perhaps afterwards. Um, it does mean that um, the first person to his door, as is so often, is the British Prime Minister, um, uh, Theresa May, um, and uh, the President um, typically gallantly refer to her as, quote, my Maggie, uh, and they met in the Oval Office, and you can see between them the bastard Winston Churchill, um, one of these eternal, but not by coincidence, uh, the Daily Mail and the Sun in Britain, the tabloid newspapers, weren't very keen on Obama because Obama moved Churchill's bust from the Oval Office uh, and thereby demonstrated that he wasn't part of the European Union. It's worth mentioning, in case I forget, that the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, said that Obama didn't like Britain because his father was Kenyan, and he had a hang-up about the British Empire. Um, this guy's now Foreign Secretary, uh, and trying to sort of bend, you know, remend these uh, relations. But as far as the UK and the US are concerned, uh, arguably, certainly before I came out here, uh, Brexit and Trump meant both mattered even more to each other than before. Uh, Britain needed to, to demonstrate that it had international clout and a free trade deal with the US, would demonstrate that all was not doom and gloom by leaving the European Union. We can discuss more of this later as I come to my uh, conclusions, Um, which are that it's rather hard to draw conclusions to something quite so recent, Um, not least, as I've mentioned, that so many of the things that were the case here now aren't the case here. And that's one of, my, one of my concerns, I think, which is that um, both Brexit and Trump were based on campaigns which sought to change things. Um, and I think the best definition of populism is that, um, and it's often misused I think, people say populist because it's something they don't like. You can, you, can, you can use it to describe anything you don't like very much or disagree with. But actually populism in this instance is an example of anti-establishmentism. Um, and I think as a criticism, it's better at describing what it wants to remove or undermine than what it wants to replace it with. And so what we have with um, the President, I would suggest, is a range of promises which aren't really sustainable because they weren't practicable in the first place and are being changed, as we've seen, for example, with NATO. Um, And uh, with Brexit, while remain was a very straightforward statement, things continuing as they were before, Leaving actually sounds simple but it's much more complicated because there's no one way of leaving. There's hot soft Brexit, hard Brexit, dogs Brexit as we mentioned as well. Um, the confusion is very clear and what's the difference between um, before and after is that Britain can't really influence the outcomes. So the difference between um, autonomy and uh, sovereignty uh, is a rather nuanced one to make. Um, and it was rather too subtle in the campaign, which is why I would suggest what happened has happened. Uh, Here are two contrasting interpretations of of Brexit. Uh, The Spectator, uh, a conservative uh, British uh, newspaper, sees this as an opportunity. Uh, out and into the world. Um, the New Yorker also sees it as an opportunity, perhaps for some fresh air, uh, to leap off and enjoy, enjoy the view for perhaps a short period of time, um, with uh, Monty Python's Minister of Silly Walks uh, leaping off the White Cliffs of Dover. The White Cliffs of Dover are a very common trope in the Brexit campaign because they, um, if, you know, they sort of recall the Second World War and the notion of Britain standing alone, repelling the invader, uh, not being um, sucked in by the foreigners and by the Germans. Um, it tied to a very deep sense of geology and psychology, of separation, of exceptionalism. And I would suggest exceptionalism is one of the many things which ties the UK and the US together. Um, and I'll end on the, the last point, which is that I hope at the very least, like the French, uh, you will wish us good luck. Here's our foreign secretary, um, should we say, in the air himself. And uh, I'll leave that there. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Farr. Uh, Your perspective is refreshing. I guess you could thank Donald Trump in one respect for keeping your remarks fresh, in that your thoughts of yesterday aren't necessarily your thoughts of today with respect to Donald Trump or NATO or matters of his consideration. So that requires no response. (laughs) other than that,
2: it's quite hard work having to redo one's conclusions every, every evening.
1: But to the point that you uh, made in the conclusion of your remarks about Brexit, is there a likelihood that uh, Britain will reconsider, and is there a framework by which it could withdraw from its withdrawal? That was
2: certainly the hope of many Remainers. Um... There was, uh, like the, 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 the Women's March here, there was a mass demonstration in London after the vote uh, on the part of by many people who hadn't voted, uh, so the best time to do this really is before the election, rather than afterwards. Um, and many young people and the demographics of Trump and Brexit are very very similar in the sense of younger people voting to remain or voting for uh, Clinton and uh, better educated, in formal sense, more formally educated people, those in urban and city environments, more likely to want to remain and to vote Democratic than those uh, not. Um, and uh, lots of these people were, you know, articulate, angry, and Animated, and there was a possibility that uh, were public opinion sufficiently um, antagonized by the fact that lots of lies had been stated, and that's on, actually on both sides. The, the Brexiters said that the Remain campaign had used Project Fear to suggest a collapse of the economy were we to leave. Um, the Leave campaign had made promises, quite specific promises, for example, that Britain paid £350 million a week to the European Union. Uh, and that that money would therefore go straight back into the National Health Service in the event of withdrawal, that the basic fact was untrue. Um, but again, the mainstream media had to discuss it. And of course, after the event, there was no such commitment that that money would be spent on the National Health Service. So when the um, the untruths of the campaign became became clearer, there was hope on the part of some there might be uh, demand for a second referendum. But actually, what seemed to happen was that any attempt to uh, temporise or mediate the decision uh, riled the press so much and could be presented as the out-of-touch elites demonstrating even more being out of touch that public opinion hardened and even now, uh, even those that wanted to leave are now, I think, resigned to the fact and want it to be done as quickly as possible and um, only those who are really, really interested and informed really still care about it to that extent. Um, the level of public understanding of, of the issues is um, it's, it's not great and how could it be? They're very complicated issues and usually there are mediating levels of legislators and civil servants to do that sort of work for them. This, with a referendum, we, we didn't have that. Um, you have elections here every four years, I know, but this was an unusual election, and a uh, very unusual election. Um, the referendums are always unusual, um, but they, they do allow the public to have a direct say, which can be in one sense democratic, but of course also means that um, very, very complicated things are cut down to a single yes or no response on one day. Um, and that's why many people think referendums themselves are really not not desirable democratic devices
1: Of course, uh, uh, this country has always revered its uh, use of referenda and uh, and initiatives uh, thinking that was kind of the heart of uh, populist democracy uh, but using that term in that context uh, leads me to ask a question that I thought was extremely thoughtful. I don't know who among you asked this question, but uh, since populism is really kind of the overarching consideration here, both with Brexit and with the election of Donald Trump, are we putting uh, undeserved emphasis on that when you consider that, in fact, Donald Trump lost the popular election in this nation by nearly three million votes. Is it fair to infer that populism is as strong as Donald Trump would lead us to believe it might be?
2: I I think, as you said, that's a very um, thoughtful and a very necessary question, because my feeling is that we can exaggerate the extent to which um, populism has taken place. Uh, Trump didn't win. Um, although he did, of course, win in terms of the college, um, although not by the margin he, of course, claimed. Um, with, um, uh, with Brexit, it was very close. It was 48-52. And had the government allowed 16-year-olds to vote, for example, as was the case with the Scottish referendum in 2014, I suspect it would have been reversed. Um, had the campaign been different, had there been more time, had Cameron... I mean, in many ways, the villain of the piece is David Cameron, who will go down in history as, uh, as Lord North, Um, who, if you're not familiar with Lord North, he's the Prime Minister who lost America. Um, Oops. Uh, And also um, Neville Chamberlain, Uh, an entire career brought down by uh, a slightly hubristic, in fact, Cameron's uh, first words on hearing of the result were, quote, well, that didn't go to plan then. And this kind of casualness to um, the, the, the affair, I think it's something which one can see in the rest of his prime ministership. Um, and it was a gamble, a short-term gamble. Um, but it never, So my point is that in both cases, someone said to me on this, uh, I don't, it's a bit pompous to call it a tour, but over my, in my time here, someone said that the, uh, Trump is because of Hillary. Uh, any other Democratic nominee would have won that election. Uh, in in, in college votes rather than merely popular vote, Biden or Sanders. I think Biden is a more arguable case than Sanders, but nevertheless. So I think in both cases, we have the notion of broad historic change, uh, the effects of globalization, uh, the notions of uh, democratic deficits of various ways, but also I think the specific illustration, the specific circumstantial um, case of the campaigns in each um, event, uh, the persons leading them and opposing them. And on another day, a different result. And also in Europe, um, in the Netherlands, um, in the Austrian elections, another, another Freedom Party, Norbert Hofer, a semi-fascistic person wants to be president. Um, I think probably in France as well, the populist insurgent parties on the right. And there are also those on the left that uh, haven't won so far, and I doubt that they will. So we may already have passed peak populism.
1: Following up with uh, questions on populism, uh, And there's some suggestion that it may not be as strong in Europe as it might have been thought to be. With the defeat of Wilders in uh, the Netherlands, uh, with your own estimation that Marine Le Pen is likely not to be uh, elected president of France in their election later this month. uh, The question yet remains, do you see the current strength of populism which, which, which is there, irrespective of those, perhaps, aberrations. Uh, do you see it as a, a future for authoritarian politics in general? My feeling
2: is, is, is not. Um, here, more than in Britain, and in fact it's because of Britain that you have them, of course, uh, in, in reaction to and in, in an attempt to improve on, um, the uh, checks and balances are, are, so, are so strong. Um, in Britain, they tend to be made up as you go along, uh, which is why there's all this confusion about what's going to happen uh, now as far as Brexit is concerned and where sovereignty actually lies. Um, I think the problem with populism, as we often see it, is that um, I mean, there is a reason why there are established parties, because governing is quite hard, and governing requires compromises, and uh, a sensible politician won't overpromise for fear of upsetting supporters by not being able to deliver. I always felt that Obama, the level of of expectation was so high that there was no possibility he could fulfill it and therefore would have betrayed his supporters and have been regarded as another uh, backslider or um, sort of compromiser. Already we've seen with Trump that, you know, the the Freedom Caucus is now criticizing him. Uh, The Syrian attacks are a very sort of, you know, traditional method of um, of foreign policy. Um, The the number of, I mean, when I'm over here, I want to watch the news channels and all three of the news channels. And the, the, the number of 180 turns are demonstrated by the quotes in the campaign, which get big applause lines and are popular, and indeed are populist, they're calculated to be popular. And the realities of governing and the shifting out of the more excitable members of his entourage and the bringing in of more stable and resilient people. This, of course, is the nature of of government in a serious um, uh, democracy in a large society, but Populist supporters could say this is another example of us being betrayed. Um, I saw one quote from a Freedom Caucus um, congressman saying that they sent Trump to clean the swamp, and has become part of the Trump, uh, part of the swamp rather, Freudian slip, part of the the swamp. Um, And so, within less than 100 days, he's held to have betrayed many of his supporters because the expectations were unrealistic and not grounded in the realities of governing. And even saying that is the kind of um, complacent. liberal establishment view that a populist would expect. My point really is that it's very impossible to, it's possible to appease or to satisfy because the demands strike me as being usually unsustainable. Um, and that's why I suspect that in most developed Western democracies, the structures will be sufficient to repel. And actually, after the excitements of last year, it may well be that people want to have rather boring, moderate, uh, temporizing governments and leaders. Um, than we've had, um, or the threat of them, certainly this year.
1: Back to boring government, sounds like a good thing, hmm? There uh, are a number of questions that have been asked about uh, Brexit and uh, and the influence that will have on parts of the UK. So, questions about Scotland, uh, where the vote was not in favor of Brexit, questions about Gibraltar, where the vote was not in favor of Brexit. Uh, I don't know what the outcome was in Northern Ireland, but uh, what will be the impact of that? Will Scotland again seek uh, her independence? And if so, will she rejoin the EU? Uh, And what about uh, Gibraltar and the Spanish ambitions for that rock? Uh, Will that create a tension between those uh, traditional otherwise allies?
2: Everything seems so straightforward, didn't it? Uh, without having to bring in four different nations in the one... Isn't it complicated enough, we have to also have these uh, additional issues. With Northern Ireland actually, Northern Ireland voted to remain, but of course there are two Northern Ireland's. Uh, the um, nationalist community voted to remain, uh, the loyalist community voted to leave. Um, and that's it's quite, quite consistent with politics in, in Ireland and in Northern Ireland. Um, Wales was, a, was, a, was an outlier here in that Wales voted, as with England, to leave. But the, the experience of the European Union in Europe and certainly in Britain has been that it's given uh, succour, given confidence to small nations, to be able to exist, if not independently, certainly with greater autonomy within this much larger assemblage of nations. Uh, If a Welsh nationalist, for example, felt that Wales wasn't big enough to be separate or independent, it could at least have greater autonomy and live within this much larger grouping of free trade and free movement. Um, I think what we saw with Brexit was that there's an English mentality, much more than a British mentality, which um, has, one could say, hubristic or nostalgic Notions of Britain's impo- or England's importance in the world, um, Scotland was much happier, I think, to recognise the changes in the world after the war. Um, was much happier than England to rec- to recognise Europe could have more than merely a transactional influence; that it could pr- pr- protect workers' rights, it could um, provide social uh, provisions, all the things that made Margaret Thatcher turn against it, appealed in Scotland, particularly as Thatcher was deindustrialising Scotland. Um, The big change in Scotland was that the Labour Party, which has been the the reliable party in Scotland for 100 years, was destroyed in the 2015 general election. Um, And the SNP, the Nationalist Party, were sent to Westminster as the overwhelming majority in Scotland, either in government in Scotland. Um, So the very fact that um, Scotland has no union voice is one reason why someone might think that it's more likely to leave because of... Brexit. And many of those who voted to remain said that if we vote to leave, it will imperil the union. Scotland had remained in the UK in 2014 by 65-45. Um, uh, closer than was expected, but still a reasonable majority. Um, the feeling was that were, were, were Britain, or mainly England, which of course is 80% of Britain, to drag Scotland out, that would inflame nationalist feelings even further and make it more likely. And Nicola Sturgeon, the first minister, has indeed promised a second referendum. My feeling actually is, though... Um, that it will be a harder task next time than last, and not because of any residual sense of of Britishness, um, but on pocketbook issues, um, that, uh, for three reasons, and very briefly, that, uh, Scotland um, will be rejoining the single market, it hopes, by rejoining the European Union, but it will thereby create a, a, a hard border with overwhelmingly its largest market and the place where most of its exports go. And the complications of that, I think, will outsell the um, attractions of the single market. Secondly, there's the issue of the currency. Actually, there are four reasons. i have Python there for you. The currency is a big issue for them as well, um, that we have um, uh, which currency will they be in, uh, will they be accepted in the European Union, The third notion is that uh, oil revenues, which was the underpinning of the Appeal of Nationalists in 2014, has disappeared. I mean, the North Sea oil has literally dried up. There's none left. Uh, And the $100 a barrel that was promised in 2014 now isn't possible. So there's no oil left to sustain the Scottish economy. Uh, And finally, Scotland has run for many years an enormous budget deficit, which is um, wiped out by the the, the central grant from Westminster. Uh, Independence would require public spending cuts of uh, an extraordinary scale. So I'm not suggesting this won't happen at some point in the future, but I think in the immediate terms, even if there's a referendum, I think pocketbook issues will prevail. Although, of course, the whole Brexit campaign was the first time in history where the pocketbook was ignored. Um, all of the experts, so-called experts, of course, who were decried for being experts, the economists, the World Bank, the IMF, pointing out the disadvantages of leaving were ignored because uh, it seemed that feelings of identity, of faith, of belief were, were more important than what appeared to be checkbook issues. So. The unpredictability makes it very hard to say with any certainty, but I think in the short term, Scotland would find the even greater uncertainty too unappealing to contemplate. Gibraltar? Oh, yes, of course. Uh, (laughs) uh, It's, for those who think of... uh, the, the new Secretary of State for International Trade, Liam Fox, is often depicted in cartoons as wearing a pith helmet and running around the world trying to recreate uh, the Boer War and all the excitements of Edwardian schoolboy uh, comic books and so on. Um, and Gibraltar is also presented in similar terms. Another chance to get the gunboats out and go and, go and fight the, the foreigners. Um, uh, it's a really, it's, it's wonderful, one well, I've been out here actually, one of the arguments against Scotland leaving, so it's, there is a connection here, was that um, the Europeans and in particular the Spanish would veto Scottish entry into the European Union as a separate country because by so doing the Spanish would be encouraging the Basques and the Catalans in Spain to, their, to leave themselves. Uh, so it was very clear to say to, to Britain and to the Scots, no you won't join separately. Then what happens? The British government goes and upsets the Spanish government by making all these sabre-rattling noises about Gibraltar. And now the Spanish have said in the last week, well, maybe Scotland could join. Um, So, I mean, you could make up such um, extraordinarily incompetent statecraft, Um, not least because the the Tableau newspapers, again, got very excited about the chance of having another Falklands. Um, which you could present as being a big moral issue, which it was actually, as well as being an imperial hangover, which it also was. Um, And the idea of war with Spain is is inconceivable, but the the public language um, suggested that was a possibility. Uh, And so it wasn't helpful. um, And it's put the cat even more amongst the pigeons than it was in the first place.
1: Thank you. Now, you know in this country that uh, there has been a terrific focus on... Uh, the potential, at least, of the uh, influence of Russia in uh, our past presidential election, and perhaps on a continuing basis. Is there any uh, suggestion that Russia tampered with the Brexit vote? Duh.
2: <laughs> Let's hear it. We're not quite sure yet the extent of it, but um, it's pretty clear that there was meddling. And the effect is not quite, we, can't know, we don't know the extent or the effect, but it's clear that the Russians, I mean, it's, it's obvious that it was in, Putin's interests, although again, this has changed since last week, that Trump won uh, here, um, not least because Trump was saying he wanted to undermine NATO. So so let's just think where things were in November here and in June here um, at home last year. So as things were, it was in Russia's interest, it was in Putin's interest for Britain to leave the EU, it was in Russia's interest for Trump to become President of the United States. Therefore given that Russia has had a history of intervening in cyber terms in Western democracies in various ways. um, It's not outlandish to imagine in one way or another they would seek to try and influence those two outcomes. Um, And I know it's being investigated here. Um, It will be investigated in the UK. Um, But even circumstantially, it makes sense. And I think it probably, I'm almost certain that it did happen to some extent. Um, And I think many of the, quite often people have been talking about the 1930s. And really stupid comments about, I won't mention his name because I'll invoke Godwin's Law, uh, this particular mustachioed European dictator from the mid-20th century. I'm not going to mention his name. But the way in which he's invoked um, and um, yoked to Trump is, is of course, absurd. But the 1930s as a a decade, um, there are similarities to the uncertainties. uh, And in particular, in the form of uh, an an aggressive Russian state, that I think has has some merit, and also the, I'm interested in, in why so many of the Trump people and so many of the Brexit people are quite fond of Putin. Uh, Aaron Banks had up on there, um, Mike Flynn. Um, it's curious the attraction, and I think it is because they regard Putin as um, essentially as a strong leader, primarily, and as someone who is who harnesses nativism. Russia first, America first, that kind of nationalism is, I mean, a better word actually than populist would be neo-nationalism. He's a neo-nationalist, as indeed I think are many of the people behind Trump and behind Brexit. And for that reason, I am surprised here, though, it's it's created less of a fuss than it has that Russia, of all countries, would have intervened in an American election, um, which uh, Dick Cheney has described as tantamount to an act of war. It doesn't strike me to have exercised people greatly, which surprises me somewhat.
1: Here's another question about Brexit and the influence of foreign influence on your election. What effect uh, did the support, the strong support President Obama gave to remaining, have on the election? Not what he intended. It was a classic example of a of a
2: backfire. Um, Someone who is usually deft, certainly deft in terms of, of diplomacy and international relations and of, um, of, of public speaking. Um, it was quite amusing because he came to London in April um, and he's popular in Britain. Um, and um, Trump is very unpopular in Britain, we may come on to this question uh, later. Uh, and so regarded as someone who is a, a, a civil, uh, you know, a humane and articulate person and so on. Um, and Cameron thought the, 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 the most effective part of his campaign, or the last thing that he needed, was the support of our closest ally, the world's leading power. Uh, and Obama came to London and said that Britain would be at the back of the queue, quote, at the back of the queue for a trade deal. It took about half an hour for this to go around social media, of course, that you never say queue, you say line. So back of the queue was a line given to him by the Foreign Office to say, and this was another example of Cameron trying to manipulate public opinion, and so it all backfired. Um, it was an example, as it was presented by some, of American bullying, of um, interfering in our election, and so on and so on. In fact, although, although Obama was ill-advised, perhaps, to use the, 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 you know, the British um, idiom, um, nevertheless, Obama is was quite consistent with every American president since Truman, which is when, of course, Eisenhower, when we first went into the European Union, that, as I mentioned in the talk, uh, American administrations have always wanted Britain in Europe um, because it helps America. And Britain is, uh, even whether you support it or not, I can't, I can't see how those who support it can suggest that Britain's influence is enhanced by having left the European Union, even with its closest ally.
1: We're, we're winding down here... Uh, Dr. Farr and I have a couple more questions that I think you, that the audience would enjoy your responding to. Is Theresa May up to the job? We
2: don't know and it doesn't help that she's unelected both as party leader and as prime minister. This is how democracies do things. You can have someone who is unelected to both positions that they hold. Um, and so she hasn't gone through the testing experiences. At least Trump has a mandate, although that's a compromised mandate in the terms of the popular vote. May has no mandate. Um, and it's one of, the, the, one of these British fudges. You don't need to have a, a mandate directly. Of course, the PM doesn't have a mandate. The PM is always the leader of the largest party in the House of Commons. You have all these mediating sort of uh, stages. It's not a direct election, as it is with the president. Um, but certainly it would help her enormously to have... Um, uh, her own mandate, but she hasn't got that for several reasons. Um, not the least of it being in that cartoon I showed you of the, of the chaos of last July when everyone was running around, and we nearly ended up with Boris Johnson as Prime Minister. Um, we had um, uh, the Prime Minister is bound by the Fixed Term Parliaments Act. Essentially, Everything you do, we eventually do, Um, even constitutionally. So the fact that you have fixed terms since the 22nd Amendment, I think it was, after the war, we now have fixed-term parliament. So the PM PM can't just call an election as he or she could in the past. They're tied to five years. Um, And so it's harder. And so she's had to go into it, into Brexit um, without calling an election, so without the mandate, and with a very small majority and that majority will be uh, tested by the, the next two years. Um, to answer the question more succinctly than I have so far, um, I suspect, my feeling is that she, she is personally up to it. Whether she's allowed to um, be as effective as she might be, I don't know, because of the constraints on her, both in terms of the press, as we've mentioned, and her own party.
1: A final question. This has a certain colonial ring to the question. What made you choose to come to this desert outpost in the provinces for this wonderfully enlightening lecture.
2: You see, I couldn't say that. Um, so it's nice to be asked it. Um, well it's, it's down to my friend Lauren who uh, was at our conference in London last year and uh, I, I love coming to this country. I love seeing parts of the country I wouldn't otherwise see. Um, and that probably explains why, why I'm here and I've had a very lovely time and this has been part of it. So thank you all very much.
1: Thank you very much, Mark.
0: We'd like to once again remind listeners that slides that were used during this presentation before the City Club of Idaho Falls are available to view at ifcityclub.com archives, where you'll also find a complete audio file of this broadcast. Join us next Monday night at 7 o'clock for another Idaho Falls City Club presentation on the topic downtown development and civic participation with Arthur F. Oppenheimer and Douglas F. Oppenheimer of Oppenheimer Companies Incorporated. That's next Monday at 7pm here on FM 91.